when we think of the, uh, the end times, you have to do something with Israel. And so we're asking the question that's on the screen, what is the significance of Israel? And you can go to the next screen if you would like. It's pretty obvious to anyone reading the Bible that the Bible is a book of two parts. We have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the focus is on Israel. In the New Testament, the focus is on the church. It's pretty obvious to see that with any reading. And so that's going to be our outline. We're going to start with the Old Testament, and then we're going to move into the New Testament as we think about the significance of Israel. You have on your page, on your notes, the significance of Israel cannot be overstated. They are God's chosen people. You knew that. That's just like Pastor Matt's, easy to fill in the blank. Huh? Chosen people, deeply loved by him. And there is a theme that runs through the Old Testament of God's incredible love for, for the people of Israel. And I don't have these verses, um, but just listen to them. Uh, I could give them to you later in Exodus 19 when, when God is getting ready to meet with the people of Israel. They've just come out of Egypt. They're, on the, uh, they're at Mount Sinai. He says, you have seen how I have borne you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself, and you are a treasure to me above all people. Treasure. Later on, when Moses gets ready to pass away, and the nation of Israel is getting to, ready to enter the promised land, he tells them in Deuteronomy 33, that he says, remember this, he says, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms, everlasting. And he's simply reminding them that, that one of the things that they can rely upon is the God that's rescued them will always be there to support them and care for them, always. Underneath are the everlasting arms. You can always count on God taking care of you. There are three times in the Old Testament where God uses a very strange word referring to Israel is Jeshurun, J-E-S-H-U-R-U-N, Jeshurun. And it's a term that means, oh, my darling. And God uses this is an incredible expression of love that he, he just, he, they are so dear to him. But I think Hosea 11, toward the end of the New Testament, is probably the greatest place where we see this incredible love that God has for him, for Israel. Israel says, God says, I loved Israel when Israel was a little child. I taught Israel how to walk. And, and he uses the picture of holding a little boy's toddler's hands with the feet on the feet and, and, and walking like that. I taught him how to walk. I cared for him. I met all of his needs. He didn't want to walk with me. But I cared for him. I kept bringing him back and bringing him back. But he still would wander away. And I loved him. And I had to let him go into captivity. And then he makes this expression that he is so deeply pained within him, even though Israel went into captivity. And he makes this statement, I can never let you go. 
I will never let you go. And he promises to regather them, to bless them, and to care for them because he's going to love them forever. So that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful theme. God's love for Israel cannot be overly emphasized because it runs throughout the entire Old Testament. Now, what we want to do is we want to look at the Old Testament. There are three basic themes that kind of guide and fill that. And the first one is that God, we have God's promises to Abraham and his family. And the next slide, Morgan, if you could, please. His amazing promise to Abraham. You've seen this before. You're, I think most of you are familiar with that. And God comes to Abraham and simply says, you follow me, you honor me, and I'll do great things with your life. That's kind of what the Savior says to us today. You follow me and honor me, and I'll do great things with your life. But if you'll notice that God promises to give to Abraham his own land, his own country, a nation, his people will fill that land, and God will use those people to make a global impact upon mankind. That land, that nation, that global impact. And you have those verses right there. I've tried to underline them when God was, says, I will make of you a great nation. Uh, I will give you the land. I will show you the, and the people on the earth will be blessed. And it's just, we're familiar with it. The nation of Israel, their history really starts with this promise. God comes to Abraham and says, you honor me, follow me, and I'll do some great things for you. I'll make your life incredibly great. And in the next slide, back up one, I'm sorry, if you can back up. Abraham begins a journey. He's trusting God for his future. And somewhere between three and four months, he gets to the land of Canaan. And God appears to him again and says, Abraham, this is it. The land that you're standing on right now, this is your land. And you can see that very clearly stated up there. This is what I was talking to you about. This is your land, the land that will belong to you and your family forever. This is it. It's very personal. God says, Abraham, this is yours. This is yours. It's very literal. The ground that you're on right now, and, and it's very obvious, he builds an altar and worships God. And as the account of Genesis continues, he continues to walk through the land, he builds another altar, and he's just worshiping God. And this promise is repeated over and over and over again in Abraham's life. God continually reassures him and reminds him of it. <clears throat> and in the next slide, you'll notice that he says in chapter 13, the Lord said to Abraham after Lot had departed from him, look around from where you are to the north, the south, and the east, and the west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. This is it. And the last line of those, of those verses, go walk to the length and the breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. Pretty clear. And then right on the bottom of the screen, later, two chapters later, God says to Abraham, I'm the Lord that brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land. So there's a reason we call Israel the promised land. Pretty, pretty simple, isn't it? 
In the next slide, when we think of the promises that God made to Abraham, uh, I thought about Christmas. You know, when kids are getting gifts, it's all about them. What do I get next? What do I get next? What did you bring for me? That's really not the way that Abraham looked on these promises. It wasn't uh, a selfish kind of thing. Abraham becomes a great lover of God, great lover of God. He's devoted to God. And what you see there on the, on the top of the screen in chapter 18, I know him, God says, he will command his children, his household after him. They will keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. He becomes an incredible lover of God. God calls him the friend of God. And we know that in chapter 22, Abraham loves God more than anything else. That's just what we see here. And it's just, it's just wonderful to see this man develop in his walk with God. You can be sure that when Isaac, his son, was born, daddy sent him down to tell him all these things, right? And, and Isaac would grow up and understand the whole story that God had promised daddy that this was going to be his land. But as Isaac grew and developed his own life, he knew that it was the promised land, not because of what daddy told him, because God would appear to Isaac. And the same thing that God said to Abraham, he now repeats to Isaac, the same thing. God repeats the same thing. And you see that there on your screen. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said to him, don't go down to Egypt, dwell in this land. I will be with you and bless you for you for to you and your descendants, I give all these lands. I will perform the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give you your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And you can see that God who spoke to Abraham and gave him these promises now repeats the same thing to Isaac, and later he repeats the same thing to Jacob. And we have that in, the, in Genesis 28, and you have that on your screen. He says, I am the Lord, the God of your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give you and your descendants. The last part, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so we see that God intentionally repeats this promise to Abraham, his son, and his grandson. And every one of these promises, the next slide, every one of them is personal. God says, Abraham, I'm going to do this for you, or Isaac, or Jacob, I'm doing this for you. This is for you. To each one of them, this is your land. This is where your family that will grow into a nation this will be your country. This will be your land, and the earth will be blessed through you. But he makes it very clear. These promises, all of them are unconditional. I'm going to do this. God says, I am going to make it happen. So there's incredible promises that we see here to Abraham and his family. That's a major theme that runs through the Old Testament, and you're all familiar with that. Second theme that we see is that God also promised to provide a Savior. <laughs> That's really more important than the promise to Abraham, isn't it? We just had Christmas. How many promises are connected with Christmas? God's promises to bring a Savior. He would be born of the, 
of the, the family of David. He would be from the tribe of Judah. He would be born a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would be God's son. And these wonderful, wonderful things, the promises are fulfilled at Christmas. And we get excited about Christmas because we know that that's what God has done. And on your sheet, on the page, we find out that the significance of Israel is that God, God provided salvation to the world through Israel. You see that under God's promise of a Savior. God would use Israel to bring salvation to the world. And that is an incredible promise. We know that we belong to God when we ask Jesus to become our Savior. We know we belong to God. We know that he died for us. We, we know that God in heaven is our heavenly Father. We know that heaven is our home. Not academically, personally, we have a living relationship. It, it, it beats anything that the world has to offer. It really does to know that we belong to God. We're secure with him. We can trust him. We can trust his word, all of these things. And what we have is being experienced by men and women all across the world who have also trusted in Christ. God promised that he would use Israel to impact the world. And we have salvation today because of God's work with the nation of Israel. A man by the name of Abraham, his family that planted themselves in the land, the whole Old Testament is, a, is an account of how God cares for this family and walks with this family. But God used Israel to bring salvation to the world, and we are indebted to Israel for that. And it just, it's just a wonderful thing. The last promise is this. God also promised that the Savior would be a great king. And... The kingdom that will rule the world. We'll have one session that looks at this later. But I have different books of the Bible that are on there. And what's significant is that every one of those talks specifically about the king and his kingdom. Every one of them. It's a major theme of the Old Testament. There's coming a time when God's son, who we celebrate his birth at Christmas, we know how his life unfolded. He died on the cross for us, ascended to heaven He's coming back again someday, and when he does, the kingdom of God will be established on earth. And we know that Christians have been, in a sense, praying for this for a long, long time. Jesus said, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when Jesus does come back the second time, he will establish the kingdom of God on this earth. And we have a, a, a separate session that will deal with that. But on your notes, I have three things that are placed there. The national size, the temple, the source of life to the world. The next slide, God is speaking to Abraham and he lays out the dimensions of the land that's his. And that red line gives us the dimensions when God said, this is your land. He's talking about all of that. No, Israel has never <laughs> occupied that much land. That is a lot of land. We think of Israel as that little sliver along the Mediterranean Sea. 
Well, no, God says, Abraham, you're going you're gonna to fill that whole thing. In the millennium, they will. It will be the center of the world, and it will be used in an incredible way to minister to the entire earth. The next slide. Because Israel will be the center of worship for the world. The Lord Jesus himself will be here. We'll talk about that later. And his presence will have an impact upon the hearts of men and women but in Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 48, or chapters, those chapters, deals with the temple that's going to be at the center of Israel. When Jesus comes back and he repairs the world from the tribulation, there's going to be some topographical changes. And in Israel, there's going to be this massive plateau that's elevated. And on top of that elevation is where this temple is going to be built. That whole section talks about that. And if you flip to the next size, you can get an example of the size of this temple. You can see the chart there. It's, it's an incredible, incredible. And the life of the world will be significantly changed. And you see the verses down there. My, my point is, when we think of the significance of Israel, God has used Israel to bring salvation to the world. That's the first thing. The second thing is that God... And the Old Testament promises that God will use Israel to lead the world in worship. And it's during this kingdom time that all of that will take place. And that gives you a summary of the Old Testament, its message. Uh, God's promise to Abraham and his family. They're going to have their own land, their nation. God will use them to impact the world. God promises that he will send a savior God also promises that that king, the Savior, will be a king, will come back and rule the world for God and lead the world in worship. And that's a quick summary of the Old Testament. That's pretty easy to see. Now, let's jump to the New Testament. The next slide, there's a phrase you may not have heard about before, replacement theology. When Jesus was here, and ministered among men. I'm glad we have four Gospels. To me personally, they're the favorite part of the Scripture. I just love to see the Savior, see him talking and interacting. Has a great ministry. Proved that he was the Savior. But he would die. He would be rejected. As you pick up the book of Acts, you see that there is a supernatural growth of the Gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And in the first, and history tells us, the second up until the fifth century, there is this marked growth of the gospel throughout Europe and the Roman Empire. In fact, the gospel, the message of salvation in Christ, will conquer the entire Roman Empire. It will actually conquer a Caesar, Constantine. And the religion that was considered to be Illegal now becomes the state religion, and there's a complete reversal. But we, what we see in the book of Acts continues for quite some time, and there's a shift in focus from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And in the first century and in the second century, there were some of the church fathers, as they're called, not all of them, but there's some of them that were looking over their shoulders, and they began to ask themselves this question, Where's Israel? It's gone. 
Where, where did it go? And it was gone. Rome had crushed it, completely dismantled and destroyed Jerusalem, dispersed the Jewish people all across the Roman Empire, and there wasn't anything left. Israel was gone, and in their minds, they're thinking, how are we going to do this? How are we going to explain what happened to Israel? Because the, the same God of Israel sent his son into this world so we could have salvation. How could we protect the honor of God and come up with some of these answers to give some kind of explanation to make sense? What happened to Israel? They're just gone. It looks like they're gone forever. And as they began to think through some of the things that they were discussing looking at the New Testament, trying to come up with answers, some of the church fathers, not all of them, they came up with five conclusions. And I want you to notice on your page, on page 13, these are the conclusions that they came up with. Now just listen to them, we'll talk about them. These are the conclusions that they came up with. This is called replacement theology. The first conclusion, God had rejected the nation of Israel. Secondly, Israel is no longer the chosen people of God. The land of Israel is no longer the promised land. God has no interest or even intent of ever using Israel again in the future. And the church has replaced Israel. Their conclusion was the blessings and privileges that God had given to Israel because they rejected the Messiah, God rejected them, and now it's all put on the church. The church has replaced Israel. Now, at this point, you're thinking, whoa, whole, slow this train down. Okay, go to the next slide. These are the people that today hold to replacement theology. Maybe some of you have come from their backgrounds and their churches. And it's, you know, we, these are good people. Uh, many of them who hold to replacement theology, uh, they believe the same things that we do. They see Christ the same way we do. They see the cross the way we do, salvation. They see the scriptures as being inspired. They, they're good people. They have a reverence, devotion to God. They want to live for eternity. We're going to see them in heaven. But they use the Bible differently than we do. And when we're thinking about the end times, looking into the future, you need to know that some of the conclusions that we made about Israel, uh, some of these folks aren't going to agree with. And, and we want to talk about that a little bit today. But that's called replacement theology. And some of you are thinking, how in the world can you come up with these conclusions? Yeah, how, can, how can you do that? God said, I will never let you go. Well, they said, well, yeah, he did. God said that you are my special treasure. I love you. Underneath are the everlasting arms. I will always be there to support you and care for you. They say, no, not anymore. We read in the Old Testament, like we read earlier, 
that the promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and uh, Jacob are, and the nation of Israel were so very specific and so very literal and so very personal. And yet they would say, well, it's different now. And so we have some questions. How, how can you do that? Well, let me explain to you how they reached their conclusions and then we'll tie this all up because it does make a difference as you think about the end times, how Israel fits in all this. Two things, the next slide. You can put these down in your two reasons. The first one is tradition. Okay, tradition. How did they come up with this? Now, tradition, religious tradition. Uh, let me say a couple of things about uh, the Roman Catholic Church and I'm speaking very respectfully. I'm not putting anybody down, okay? Get, okay, join me on that. I am not, this is not a put-down session on the Roman Catholics. The majority of people who attend the Catholic Church will share with you without any hesitation. They would say, we understand that the Bible is a very hard book to understand, and most people can't understand it. That's why it's important for us to learn the traditions of the church or the teachings of the church because once we learn our traditions, we know our faith is okay. And I say that respectfully. That's what they do. Every person has the right to determine what they're going to believe. But at Mount Calvary, we would encourage people when you're shaping your faith, when you're determining what you're going to believe, we would encourage you believe, let, make sure your beliefs are based on Scripture, what the Bible says, and not necessarily religious tradition. Big difference. Uh, the Catholic Church, uh, they have one of their traditions deals with the infallibility of the Pope. And again, I'm speaking respectfully. Uh, that's not in the Scripture. Uh, Mary is at the center of, of what they believe and how they practice, speaking respectfully. Uh, they teach in their traditions that Mary was born without sin. She lived without sin. Some say that she really didn't die, but she ascended to heaven. She had no sin. The apostles came to escort her. None of those things are in the Bible, but that's their traditions. And, and we've learned that over the years, whatever denomination or back faith background, when people hold to traditions, it's hard for them to give them up. We, we just know that's how traditions work. I have a personal friend who is a Catholic priest. And this last year, he said to me, I've known him for several years, he says, Dan, he says, we use the Bible, we refer to the Bible, but we don't know the Bible. Not like you. He's referring to Protestants or Bible-believing churches like this. You, I mean, you really know the Bible. He says, would it be okay if we studied the Bible together? And I said, sure. He even gave me a verse that was interested in John 1.12, a salvation verse. <laughs> and, and we've had different studies. or I've been in his study at different times, and, and we've talked. We've had lunch together. And what I'm sharing with you is that once a tradition gets a hold of people, it's really hard for them to let it go. It's just a part of what traditions do in different ways. Now, that's traditions. 
the conclusions that the church fathers came up with are their traditions. Their traditions. There is nothing in the New Testament that suggests that God has abandoned Israel or rejected them. You can't find it anywhere. In Romans 9 through 11, it does talk about blindness to Israel, but blindness is not the same thing as rejection or abandonment. God has not abandoned his people. They're still his people. And, it's, and we struggle with this. How is it they can do that? For those in the replacement theology, they, they believe so much of what we do in the same way, but when it comes to the area of Israel, there are, there are a couple of things that are just bedrock for them. Truth starts for them when they say God has rejected Israel and the church has replaced Israel. They start with that, and then they build their thoughts around that. And our comment would be, but we don't see that in the Bible. But as time went along for history from the first century into the fifth, and even throughout to the 20th century, that it appeared that made sense. I mean, Israel was gone. I mean, where is it? It's gone. How do you reconcile these things? And people became comfortable with it. Church fathers, different people became comfortable, and they settled in it. And they concluded that, yeah, this is, this, this is the way we should look at the scriptures. Even though there were those statements that are clearly made, God said, I can never let you go. They said, well, yeah, he did. Uh, underneath are the everlasting arms. Well, not so much now. And how can they hold on to those? Well, that gives you the second thing there, allegory, a story to create a message they concluded, as they looked at the scriptures, that God never intended the Old Testament to be used in a literal interpretation. It was an allegory. It was a story contained in the Old Testament are truths, lessons, messages that God wanted to give to people. That's the purpose of the Old Testament. Forget about the literal part of it and just focus on the stories. And if you were raised in a replacement theology church, uh, you have heard several times a pastor say, well, let's look at the story that God has for us today. What is the lesson that God has given us here in this Old Testament passage? Allegory. They look at that. So they moved from what does the Bible say to what does it mean? And, and that's been a big change for them. <clears throat> and as we think through that, that's what's driving this thing. They also say in their literature, in their books, their conferences, they use this phrase, the New Testament has authority over the Old Testament. And that in the understanding of the Old Testament, any understanding must come from the New Testament. The New Testament has authority over the Old Testament. And when they say that, what they're doing is, is that they're letting us know in their eyes the Old Testament is really not at the same level as the New Testament. It's not 
that important. It's not up to that standard. We would have a little problem with that because we're, we're told, we read Scripture, all Scripture is given by inspiration of the God and is profitable. And we hold that the Old Testament and the New Testament are equal in importance and in value and that it is to be understood literally. And that when we think of Israel, God who promised to give Abraham a land, a family, a nation, and impact the world, he fulfilled those promises. God who promised to send to the world a Savior, he fulfilled that promise. When he makes the promise in the Old Testament over and over again, and we'll see this when we talk about the millennium, that the Savior will become a great king, he will come back, he will lead the world into its golden age, the millennium, we believe that's going to be fulfilled too. God fulfilled all the other promises, literally. He's going to fulfill this one too, and we believe that. But for the replacement theology folks, when I say they use the Bible differently than we do, bedrock for them is that God has rejected Israel, the church has replaced Israel, and the Old Testament scriptures are to be understood allegorically, not literally. Forget about the literal stuff. And so the world had kind of, the church world had kind of settled into this theology. And again, for centuries, it had become acceptable. It was very comfortable. I mean, Israel was gone. <laughs> there was, for almost 2,000 years, it was gone. And then something happened that shook up the world pretty good. The next slide. The United Nations declared that Israel would once again be a nation, May of 1948. They also declared that its ancient homeland, the land of Israel, the promised land, would again be their land, their country, it was theirs. And all of a sudden, Israel that was gone for almost 2,000 years was back. And that kind of sent some shockwaves through the church world because, and you would have to think that people are, who were holding on the replacement theology would come to the place, wow, maybe they are God's chosen people. Maybe God isn't done with them yet. Maybe we were wrong in some of our traditions and our conclusions. Maybe we better go back and revisit that. Maybe the promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the nation of Israel about the future and the king coming back for this millennial rule, maybe it's true. You would think that they would revisit all of that. But when traditions get a hold of you, they're hard to let go. And the next slide, I wanted to share with you two things and we'll be done with this. John Pfeiffer is a leader today in the covenant theology circles. He's replacement theology. And I heard him make this statement on the radio when I was traveling one day. I listened to some of his um, podcasts with uh, his students at the seminary. He has a very godly man. But he made this statement, a literal Israel does not need to exist for God to fulfill his plans. Now think about that and think about what he's done. 
A literal Israel does not need to exist. In his mind, God has rejected Israel. They're not in the picture. Just forget about them. They're not important anymore. That's because his approach to the scripture is based on those three non-negotiable elements. God has rejected Israel. The church has replaced Israel. And the scriptures must be interpreted allegorically. Forget about the literal stuff. Israel is gone. They've turned the page. They've closed the book. It's gone. In their mind, truth starts for them with those three concepts, especially in eschatology, and they build around that. It does not need to exist for God to fulfill his plan. In their minds, the church has replaced Israel. It's not about Israel anymore. God will take the church and do all he wants to do in the world through the church. It is his tool. Forget about Israel. It's all about the church. So a lot of folks today in the replacement theology feel the same way. And what we're going to be doing in the rest of the day is trying to put some of this together and to share with you, yeah, God still has a plan for Israel. They still are his people. He still loves them dearly. And they will lead the world in worship. And we'll see that when we get to the millennium. But when you hold on to these things, these uh, uh, non-negotiables, and you begin your truth there, when you begin to look at scriptures, sometimes you run into problems. And I have Revelation chapter 1 for you there. You remember John, and I'll close with this. John, he's on the Isle of Patmos. He's been exiled there. The church is under, on the mainland in Asia, or in great persecution. And he's wondering, what, God, what are you going to do? Lord Jesus, what are you going to do to take care of your people? And that's when he hears a voice behind him. You remember how the book of Revelation starts? Speaking to him, and John turns around, and he sees the Savior in all of his glory. Jesus says, Gilbert translations, I got it covered. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll take care of your people. He then, in chapters 2 and 3, he gives messages to the churches, literal churches that are existing in Asia during the time. Write these down, send them to these churches. And then Jesus tells John, after he's seen everything that's in the book of Revelation, this vision of what's happening in the future, he says... Write down what you have seen, what is, and the things that are to come. Write them down. And as John begins to write the book of Revelation, he gives us an outline for the book. And he says, write what the things that are, that you've seen, the, what you've seen, what is, the church letters, and then from chapters 4 to the end of the book, write the things that are about to happen. Write them down, the things to come. And he makes it clear that the book of Revelation is a book about the future and how God is going to care for the future, the, the steps that the world is going to go through that lead up to the time that Christ comes back to this world. It's a book about the future. Those in replacement theology because of their traditions and those non-negotiables, they tell us that the book of Revelation is a book about now. It's not a book about the future. 
And the lesson that we're supposed to learn from the book of Revelation is when Christians have trouble with evil in this world, God will take care of them no matter what. And they moved away from the literal understanding to a storyline, what their thoughts are. God will take care of you no matter what. And, and when they come to us and they present their thoughts, they will present it this way. Well, don't you believe that God can take care of his people? I mean, no matter how bad it gets, don't you believe that God is able to take care of his people no matter what? And our response is, well, yeah, God's been doing that for a long time. He can do anything, and he certainly will take care of his people. But the issue is not whether or not God will take care of his people. The issue is, what does God's word say? And if Jesus told John the book of Revelation is a book about the future, then it makes sense to me. It's a book about the future. It's a book about the future. The reason I've gone into all of that is this, and I'm done. We've seen that, that God has used Israel to bring salvation to the world. He keeps his promises. God will use Israel to lead the world in worship. But those who do not see Israel clearly will never understand how God's going to care for things at the end of times because their traditions get in the way. The Bible is to be understood literally, we believe. And that's all I'm going to say about that now.